You're listening to the Tri-State Community Church Podcast, a ministry of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church located in the greater Pittsburgh metropolitan area. For more information, including service times, please visit us at facebook.com forward slash Tri-State Reformed Church. John 15, verse 7 through 16. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends, for all that I have heard from my Father I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, He may give it to you. Heavenly Father, we do look to you, Lord, and we pray that, Father, you would teach and instruct us this morning, that, Father, you would help us to understand the things that we've read, that, Father, we would not stop just with simple understanding, but that, Father, you you would make application to our hearts, that, Father, you would work in our uh, lives in such a way that, Father, We store these words up in our hearts, and we carefully align our lives around the truths of these words. For your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Now, last week, I was really hoping to get to verse 8. We didn't make it through verse 8 last week. We only made it through verse 6, and and I'm always praying for the Lord to lead and guide, and I'm so thankful we didn't make it to uh, the end of verse 8, because I will tell you, as I was, um, as I was uh, discussing with one of you this morning, you know, I've, I've seen some things in verse, uh, verses 7 and 8 that you, we, wouldn't have, we wouldn't have got last week. Uh, let's just put it that way. Um, what we have here is um, we really begin to see God's transforming grace. You know, we have the metaphor which we've been studying, the metaphor of uh, the vine, and we have, we have seen that Jesus is not simply picking on a grapevine uh, like some preacher might do. You see a grapevine and say, wow, you know, this really is a great, this right here is really a great sermon illustration. It's a great illustration of, of the spiritual life. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that, but that's not what Jesus is doing. Jesus is calling upon this great metaphor that is in the Old Testament that concerns Israel. Israel is the vine. We saw that in our reading. I pointed it out to you in our reading in Psalm 80. That's one of the places where we see that. Psalm 80, we see in Isaiah 5, we see in Ezekiel 15, we see it in various places. Jeremiah 2, it comes up periodically as we read, and we see allusions to it in many other places. And uh, Israel Israel is the vine of God's planting, if you will. And the problem is not that Israel is God's vine, but the the indictment is that Israel has not been uh, fruitful. And uh, as on the account of that, uh, Jesus has come and Jesus says that 
He is the genuine vine, if you will. He is the true vine. And Jesus has come to be fruitful. And he is developing that. He is calling us to abide in him. He is calling us to this faith union in him, if you will. And uh, we've been looking at that. But as we turn to the second half of this section, especially, um, arguably, I mean, commentators make this division in different places. I guess in this morning we're going to be making the division in verse 7, but uh, properly, it, it probably verse 9, but it doesn't make a lot of difference. What the, but that we understand that the second part of this is an explanation of the first part of it. Where we divide that is not. You want to divide it in verse 7, fine. You want to divide it in 8, 9, fine. Verse 11, people are dividing it in different places. Set that all aside. What's important that we see is that the second part of it, wherever we decide begins, is an explanation of the first. And what is being explained is the transforming grace, this transformative grace that results and can only result as we're brought into this faith union with Jesus. And of course, this is what's wrong with Judas. Judas was never in this faith union to begin with, and that is why he has been cut off. And it's the, it's the primary example uh, of what it means to be cut off. Um, but here in verse 7, Jesus is saying, listen, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, what I've come to see this week that I didn't see last week is a pattern. Now, I was well aware of the pattern because the pattern is more clear in verse 9. We'll get to that in its place. But uh, what, we, what we see here actually are seven patterns. There are seven patterns here that I want to uh, really unfold this morning. And we could call them soul-warming patterns. We could call them soul-empowering patterns. And if you're like me, you don't, can't make up your mind which to call them. We could call them both, soul-warming and empowering patterns, if you will. Or we could just say, what does God's transforming grace look like? Well, it looks like the picture that we have here. Now, if you look at verse 7, Jesus says, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Now, I think on the surface of this, we would all agree that's a, that is an astonishing statement, isn't it? I mean, what is Jesus saying? Is he, is he sitting down at the table and is he taking out the checkbook and he's just going through the checks, signing them, leaving them all blank, and then sending the, giving you the checkbook and saying, here, ask whatever you want and it's done for you. Is that what Jesus is doing now? Many of you are going, no, it's not, you know. Um, it would be cool, though, wouldn't it? I see some grins out there. Your grins are giving you away. Um, but we know better than that. And why do we know better than that? Because of a principle that I'm always making noise about, a principle of interpretation that says, listen, whatever interpretation, wherever we arrive at in one verse, it needs to be able to withstand the scrutiny of the rest of the verses, right? So if we, if we have an interpretation of one verse that stands in conflict with, some, with the clear teaching of some other verses, then, then we can be rest assured that uh, we either have misunderstood one verse or we're misunderstanding the other verse or we're misunderstanding all of it, which is sometimes the case. Um, now, of course, if we try to take that kind of a uh, interpretation of this verse, we know better. Uh, Jesus is not simply giving us a stack of blank checks that are signed. Uh, well, then what does it mean? 
Um, we don't want to explain it away. I've seen verses like this explained away to the degree that they don't seem to mean anything anymore. So you would ask yourself, why did Jesus say it if it didn't mean anything? Well, it does mean something, and Jesus is giving it to us for a reason. And I will argue that it's a really powerful reason. Now, what, how do we understand something like this? Three things, context, context, and context, right? Now, in this case, the context is a little trickier. Because we really, in many respects, I think, to get to really get the picture, we have to kind of step outside of John's gospel for a moment. Let's not forget what's happening here. This is the night that Jesus is betrayed. Now, within an hour, maybe within a half an hour, maybe within two hours, Jesus and his disciples are going to be leaving and going to the Garden of Gethsemane, aren't they? Let's not forget, the Garden of Gethsemane is part of this context, isn't it? What happens there? Well, as Jesus gets there, in fact, let's, let's just refresh our memories. Go to Matthew. We could go to any of the three Gospels we call the Synoptic Gospels. Go to Matthew 26 and verse uh, 36. But this is all recorded for us in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But Matthew, Matthew 26, starting with verse 36, then verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. Now, this is happening. It could be a half an hour after Jesus has given this, uh, I am the vine, you are the branches uh, discourse. It could be an hour. It could be two hours. We don't know exactly, but it's soon. Uh, it's a period of time that could be me- measured in minutes. And Jesus and his disciples, they go to Gethsemane. And he says to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. Verse 37, taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And, I'm, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Well, this is a well-known prayer of Jesus, isn't it? And what is Jesus doing here? He, he's looking ahead. He knows, what he's, he, he knows what the assignment is, doesn't he? Can you imagine the anguish? He knows full well what's about to happen. And what is he doing? He has a desire that this be taken away, that maybe we could skip this step. Maybe we could pass this. He has a desire. Father, if there's another way, I'm all ears here. But, or as the ESV puts it, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And if we think in terms of Jesus' desires here, let's just put on our theologian cap for a moment. Can we say that Jesus has a desire that this pass from him? Absolutely. The text is clear about that. But would we say that's his greatest desire? No. What is his greatest desire? Not that his will be done, but the Father's will be done. Now, with that in mind, let's think about John's gospel again. Let's think about the context of John's gospel. Turn back to John's gospel again with me and go to all the way back to John chapter 4. You know, Jesus is talking with the Samaritan woman at the well, and after this, The disciples are encouraging him in verse 33 to eat something. And in verse 34, Jesus says to them, my food is to do what? 
the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. So, in other words, what Jesus is saying, listen, what sustains me and what keeps me going is to do the will of the Father. This is what I am on about. You need to understand, this is what I am on about. He says it again. He says it in many places, but if you look at chapter 5, verse 30, he says there, I can do nothing on my own as I hear I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. You see that same kind of idea there expressed from a different vantage point. And in um, chapter 6, verse 38, he says, I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So in other words, he's got a word from the Father, and it's the word from the Father that he desires to do, right? In fact, it's this word from the Father that he desires more than anything else even escaping crucifixion upon a cross. Does that make sense? Now, if we go back to John 15 with this context in mind, and Jesus says to his disciples, if you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Well, we could maybe start to make sense of this because there's a condition statement at the beginning, isn't there? That's what's set up with the word if, isn't it? You know, as children, you know, we want to ask if we can go somewhere. You know, well, if your father says it's okay, there's a condition statement. Okay, in other words, mom says it's okay, but it's conditioned on getting a good word from dad, right? We've been, we've, we've, we've learned that. We got that down, don't we? There's a condition statement here. Well, here's the condition statement. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. What does it mean to abide in Jesus? We talked about that last week. That's coming to him in this, in this trust. That's coming to him in a continued pattern of trust where we're embracing him with trust. We're embracing him with faith, if you will, and it's a continued pattern where we're abiding, we're remaining, uh, we're continuing in him. But notice that his words are to abide in us. Now, what does that look like? Well, that's easy. That's what we're doing right now, isn't it? What are we doing? We're gathering around the words of Jesus. And what are we doing? We're seeking to understand them prayerfully. We're asking the Lord to teach us so that we can store these things up in our hearts. Why? So that we can align our lives around them, right? We're embracing Jesus this morning. I hope we're embracing him this morning. If we're not, please, let's talk after the service. But we're embracing Jesus this morning in this continued trust, and we want to learn about his word. Why do we want to learn about his word? Because we want to store his words up in our hearts so that we can align our lives with his word. It's the position of the psalm, the psalmist in Psalm 1. You know, blessed is the man who what? Who delights in the law of the Lord, and on God's law he meditates day and night. You know, Spurgeon, in one of his, I think it was in one of his sermons, you know, so graphically illustrated this. He was speaking of John Bunyan. He said, listen, if you would have taken John Bunyan, you would have cut him. Scripture would have flowed out of his veins. Why? Because he had stored up so much of God's word. And this was just what uh, John Bunyan was all about. It's just a great graphic illustration. I know Alex loves that one. He's like, he likes that one. Um, it's, it's just a great illustration of what we're to do. We're to abide in Christ and we're to store his words up in our hearts. And what Jesus is saying, listen, if you do this, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. 
How is it that it can be done for you? Because we are going to progress. Let's remember what this fruit is. If we're abiding in Christ, we are going to be producing fruit. What did we say this fruit is? Well, part of what this fruit is, is what Paul sets forth in Galatians 5.22, isn't it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. All of these various fruits are going to be growing in us. Now, as you grow in those things, what are you really growing in? You're growing in Christ-likeness. As we grow in all of these things, we are becoming more and more like Christ. As we become more and more like Christ, how important is the will of God and that the will of God be carried out in our lives? It becomes increasingly important to us, right? So then our prayer life starts to look more and more like the Garden of Gethsemane where we find ourselves in a situation where, okay, we're in the emergency room. Right, Lord, we don't know how this thing's going to end. We would like it to end this way. But then we have the courage and the faith to say, but Lord, not as I will, but as you will. There's one way that we would like this to go, but the way we really want it to go more and more and more is the way you want it to go. Now, how, how can a prayer like that not possibly be answered? You know, um, John, in 1 John 5, 14, he offers us a commentary on this. You get a lot of, you have a commentary on John's gospel in 1 John, by the way. You'll see that here. It's, it's amazing. The Bible's its best interpreter. But in 1 John chapter 5, verse 14, you go to Revelation and turn left, past Jude, past 3 John, 2 John, 1 John at the very end, 1 John 5, Verse 14, this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. He hears us. And of course, as we're thinking about God hearing us, we can also, we want to keep in, in the, in the um, context here, Psalm 66, I think it's verse 18, that says, if I'd have cherished iniquity in my heart, the Lord would not have heard me, or the Lord would not have answered me. Um, so we always want to keep all of these things at play here. But here we see, if we ask anything according to the will of God, he hears us. So how is this a pattern? It's a pattern this way because what is Jesus doing? He's talking about his transforming grace. If we abide in him and he in us, we will bear fruit. And some of this fruit is fruit in our prayer life. And what Jesus is doing, it seems to me, what Jesus is doing here is nothing short than doing this, saying, listen, you see my prayer life? You see how my prayer life is? Guess what? You abide in me, and I'm going to make your prayer life like my prayer life. See the pattern? You see my prayer life? I'm going to make my prayer life your prayer life. That's huge. That's huge. And verse 8 is another pattern. You know, by this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Jesus is the true vine. He is the one who is fruitful. And what is he doing? He is creating, if you will, 
these branches. He's bringing us into the vine, and branches are going to be fruitful. And just, you know, just as Jesus has brought glory to the Father, so also will we bring glory to the Father. And in the immediate context is prayer. So what's really huge about this, I mean, I like the fact that we had so many praises this morning. You know, we had praise for a baby girl being born. We had praise for uh, this reuniting with uh, old friends, praise for the Lord being involved in this sale of this house. We had all these praises. There's many other praises we didn't talk about this morning. But all of these praises, what are we doing when we, when we praise? We're glorifying the Lord. You know, um, I would love to be able to share. There's, there's a couple really significant answers to prayer that throughout the winter through, through, that concern the park. I can't talk about these things because they're, they're, they're pretty private. But I never imagined that these things would be answered the way that they've been answered. And I only bring it up now not to make you all wonder what they're about. I don't mean to do that to you. But I only bring it up because... The moment when I started to see how God answered these prayers, they're so big that when I started to see how God was answering these prayers, I was literally in awe. I would have never predicted that God was going to do what God did. But here's my point. I was worshiping God as I learned about how he answered those prayers. The person that was telling me these things had no idea what was going on in my heart because they don't know I prayed for those things, and they can't know that I prayed for those things. But I did pray for those things, and they're happening. And what is happening? What's happening in my own heart? I'm using myself as an example here. What's happening in my own heart is that I'm glorifying the Lord. In other words, God is being glorified through what? Fruitful prayer. And that should, give us, that should give us a lot of impetus to want to pray. So a lot of times we pray like, well, I don't know if God's going to answer me. I don't know if he's going to answer me. I don't know if he's going to do it or not. I don't know if this, I think, throws that down on its face. See, God is glorified when our prayer life is fruitful, just like he was glorified when Christ's prayer life is fruitful. Does that make sense? It doesn't mean that our prayers are going to come out the way we want them to come out. Go back to the Garden of Gethsemane again. It doesn't mean that. I mean, what did Jesus initially ask for? He initially asked that this cup be taken away from him, right? What's that mean? That there's another way. But that isn't how it worked out. But God was glorified, wasn't he? God was glorified. Jesus says, not as I will, but as you will. Does this make sense? So we see, we see two ways here already, two patterns. Uh, patterns in the prayer life, patterns in glory, if you will. And, the, and the, the third one's in verse 9, which I think is the easiest one to see. That's actually where I really started to see the pattern. Look at this astonishing statement. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Have you ever paused over that statement and just taken that in for a moment? As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. There's a pattern here. There's a likeness here to the way that the Father loves Jesus and the way that Jesus loves his disciples. That's incredible. Well, some would say, well, okay, could you flesh that out just a little more? Be happy to. Think about the second person of the Trinity 
excusing himself permanently for the rest of eternity to a human person, Jesus of Nazareth. And in doing so, fusing himself per, per, uh, permanently to all of the branches that would be in Christ. Living, in order to make this possible, he has to come and live in basic poverty for 30-plus years and then um, live this perfect life, take this perfect life to the cross, offer this perfect life on the altar of his cross, if you will, be crucified, uh, dead, buried, third day, rise from the dead, and then ascend to heaven. Think about the massive amount. And we, we always should think first about the love of Jesus towards the Father, and we're going to see that here in verses 10 and 11 here in a minute. But let's think about the love of Jesus to us in this act. If we ever have any questions to, Lord, do you really love me? Look to the cross. There you can see he loves you. You know, oh, how he loves you and me. And that what we sing once in a while? Oh, how he loves you and me. I love that song. Oh, how he loves you and me. Well, it's with, a, it's with a love that's in the likeness of the love that the Father has for Jesus, which is breathtaking. It's a breathtaking pattern. It should be soul-warming to us. It also should be soul-empowering. Doesn't that make you want to serve him, knowing that he loves you like this? It does make you want to do things for people when they're so kind to you, doesn't it? You know, when a waiter or waitress is really good to you, doesn't it make you want to tip them a little extra? It makes you want to do things, doesn't it? It's, 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 the, it's the great, I mean, love is the greatest motivator in the world. You know, no mom runs into a burning home to save her baby because she's worried about what the neighbors will think if she doesn't do it. She runs in to save her child. It's love. She will give her life to save this child. Why? The most powerful motivator is love. That's why. And that's what brings us to it. And that sets us up perfectly. You can see where Jesus is going when he says in verse 10, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. You know, he calls you to abide. He calls us to abide in his love in verse 9. He fleshes it out in verses 10 and 11. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. What is Jesus saying here? Is he saying that, okay, if, we, if, we, if we're really good, then God will love us? Well, again, we know better than that, don't we? This isn't the first time Jesus is bringing this up. If you look in the last chapter, you look at verse 15, Jesus says there, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. In other words, this obedience is something that is returned to Jesus because we love him. Why do we love him? Because he has won our hearts. That's why we love him. In other words, our obedience is our response to his love. He says something similar in verse 23. If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Well, of course we're going to obey him if we love him. What's the alternative? To disobey him and be a rebel? Can a rebel be said to love somebody he's rebelling against? No, that's the heinousness of sin in our lives. That's why we're on our knees, isn't it, as we discover sin in our lives? It's not the, it's not the proper return. What's the proper return to Jesus? The proper return is obedience. But notice there's a pattern here. There's a very clear pattern in verse 10. Jesus says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as... I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Does the Father only love Jesus because he obeys him? 
No. And, and this is the likeness that's being set up. Jesus says, look, I want you to look at my life and look what I'm doing and what you're going to see I'm about to do. They don't know it yet. They don't know how this night's going to turn out. They don't know how, they, they have no idea right now how tomorrow is going to be. They don't know that yet. What's tomorrow going to bring? The crucifixion of Jesus. They're all going to scatter here within hours. They don't know this is coming. But Jesus says, look at the last thing he says in, verse, in chapter 14, verse 31. He says, I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. No, Lord, not as I will. But as you will, even if it means going to a cross and dying on a cross, not as I will, but as you will. What does this show? What does this prove? It proves that Jesus loves the Father, doesn't it? And Jesus says here in verse 10, if you in the same way keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. So we see that our obedience is to be patterned after Christ's obedience. Verse 11, these things I've spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Here's another pattern. What joy is this? What joy? What, what's, what, what vat of joy does, does Jesus run to, to grab, to give to us? Is it, is it the, the seconds that didn't pass muster in heaven? Oh, those seconds, you can send them down to earth. They'll, they'll be happy with that. That's, uh, they're, they're, they'll be fine with that. And we probably would be fine with those seconds, wouldn't we? We really would, wouldn't we? Look at the stuff we're satisfied with now as it is. Look at the stuff we forsake God for now as it is. Oh, yeah, they could say, oh, well, you know, the, 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 you know, come to think of it, the seconds are actually too good. Give them the thirds. They'll be happy with it. Send that down there. That's not what's going on in this text, is it? Notice what Jesus is saying. He is saying, my joy, my joy, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Joy in what? Joy in obedience. Gospel obedience is not this dull, gray, oh, okay, if I have to, kind of obedience. You know, there's um, um, different times when we've been traveling. We've, you know, like everyone else, you kind of get bored and you start flipping through the radio stations, you know, and once in a while you'll come across a station where they're reading Scripture. I like to just listen to people read Scripture. But sometimes you'll come across these stations and they're reading Scripture. And it just sounds like, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater. Have you ever heard anybody read Scripture like that? It's like, what in the world? That's dull and, you know, uh, but all these things they will do to you on account of, you know, it's like, what in the world is that? Are they sitting on nails as they're reading this? What's going on? Somebody give them an aspirin or something or let someone else read. Gospel obedience is not obedience that looks or sounds like that. Gospel obedience is obedience that is joyous. You see, we can't do this to ourselves. You, this is why, unless you're, abiding in the, unless you're abiding in Christ, this is impossible. How could it be possible to be joyous to go to a cross? It's, it's humanly impossible, but we know that Jesus did it because he went to the cross for the joy that was set before him, didn't he? The joy of what? Seeing the Father glorified. Is that really? We have to ask ourselves, and probably as we ask ourselves this, we probably should be prepared to make a, a confession here. And we should be prepared to repent. But let's ask ourselves, is the most important thing in our lives the glory of the Father? Is that the most important thing in our life? 
Could we really honestly say the most important thing in our life is, Lord, that you be glorified? I, I, I warned you, we should be prepared to repent after we say that. And I don't want to make light on that. But you see, that's where God is taking us. It might, maybe it's not where we are right now, but you see, this is the direction. This is the movement of where this thing is going. As we abide in Christ and his words abide in us, we want to grow in this disposition to where it, where it becomes, listen, your glory is more important to me than anything else. Even if it means, even if it costs me my life, your glory is more important. And then that way, guess what? Well, God is going to be glorified. And if that glory is the most important thing in our lives, you're going to be joyous. But let's back up even one step further, and let's just think about how wonderful is it to bring joy upon a person that you love? I mean, isn't that really what's behind giving gifts to our loved ones, isn't it? I mean, you do something really special. You know, I just, I just got something really special for Tammy for her birthday, and I, could, you know, I couldn't order it early. She would have known what it was. And I was worried about ordering it late. Sorry, it's a great illustration. <laughs> but I couldn't, I couldn't order it too late or it wouldn't be there on time. So I'm kind of, I'm like, I wanted to be on time for her birthday. And it was something that I saw her look at about two months earlier, maybe. And as soon as I seen her look at it, I wanted to get it for her that day, but I had to wait two months to get it. So I got it for her. And you guys know where I'm going. When you give these gifts to your loved ones, the joy you get from watching their hearts be moved. Do you follow me? That's, see, that's what we're to be on about. That's what we're to live for, only to see joy given to the Father. Does that make sense? And this is what Jesus is promising us here. He's saying, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. What joy? Joy of pleasing the Father. So that, you know, I think, I think I remember reading somewhere in the Gospels where the Father said, this is my son. With him I am what? How wonderful to hear those words. You know, it, to, to hear those words, well, these are my children all gathered here at Tri-State Community Church. With them I am well pleased. You know? I mean, we're not laboring for his love. We're laboring because of it. Does that make sense? It's tricky here to, to preach this because I don't want us to leave here saying, well, I'm going to better be obedient. So I'll be a good little boy or girl and God's going to love me. No, we're going to be, we're, go, we're going to obey him and align our lives around this teaching because he loves us, because of what he has done for us, because he has given us every spiritual, every um, spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Does that make sense? This can easily run a file, and I don't want to do that. Jesus says in verse 12, this is my commandment that you love one another as I have loved you. And uh, Jesus, of course, has brought this up um, uh, before, you know, in John chapter 13 when he's washing their feet. In verse 13, he says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for the servant does not know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that you have heard from uh, my father, I have made known to you. And here we have the last pattern, and that's the pattern of friendship. You know, when I read these passages, the, the, the story, the biblical story that always comes to my mind is a story in the life of Abraham recorded for us in Genesis 18, where Abraham's in his tent. It's hot. It's the middle of the day, and these three strange visitors come to him. You know that story? It's a visitors are mysterious, aren't you? We know, we know that the Lord visits him. And what is it concerning? What's concerning the destruction of Sodom, isn't it? 
It's concerning that the destruction of Sodom. And um, at one point in that whole discourse, the three visitors, they say, shall we withhold from Abraham what we're going to do? And the answer is no. Why? Because Abraham is not just simply a servant of the Lord, but he is a friend. I think three places in the Old Testament, the exact citations escape me right now, where Abraham is called a friend of God. And here, what is Jesus doing? He's saying, listen, you know, Abraham would have been huge. <laughs> he would have been huge to these guys. And I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't doubt, but these, if these thoughts are coming to my mind, I'm sure they're coming to theirs. And Jesus says, listen, you are my friends. You are my friends. No longer do I call you servants, verse 15. For the servant doesn't know what his master is doing. But I've called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. There's another pattern. Jesus hears from the father. And it's what he hears from the father that he does. Undoubtedly, there you have the pattern of friendship between. Uh, and it's, it's really interesting that friendship comes up in our, in our prayers and concerns this morning. We're thinking about friends. And right here it is the wonderful uh, blessing of friendship. And what's going on here is just as Abraham was a friend of God, guess what? In the New Covenant administration, all of Jesus' disciples are brought into this, this friendship posture, if you will, that we are friends with God, which is incredible, isn't it? Um, so verse 16, just real quick. Jesus said, you did not choose me, but I chose you, appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. Here we see that, and it's important that we see, I've been talking about the fruit, primarily uh, Galatians 5.22 fruit. It's, it's love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I'm trying to be careful here because a lot of times, and I've read them, a lot of times explanations of this text focus completely and solely on going out and winning converts. Now, um, I want to guard against that because that's not the, that's not the only fruit there is. Um, but I want to do it in such a way where I say, okay, that's not, <laughs> I don't want to guard it to the exclusion of it. Um, what's the purpose of this? The purpose, we're, we're, our marching orders is to go, isn't it? And that's what we have here in verse 16, go that you should go and bear fruit. Of course, uh, winning souls for Christ is uh, something that we should be doing, and that is fruit. But w what I want us all to realize is so someone might be sitting here saying, you know, I've never led anyone to Christ. I've never even come close to leading anyone to Christ. I don't want you to think because of that you're not fruitful. Um, as we're looking into our lives and we're looking for fruit, we're looking for Christ-likeness. Is there Christ-likeness in your life? Because here's the, here's the fact. You know, someone could come along and come to this person over here and share the gospel with them, and that person actually could come to saving faith only because they've worked with this person over here who has demonstrated Christ-likeness for the last 15 years in their lives. Now, this person over here doesn't think he has any fruit in his life at all, and he thinks, that oh, this amazing evangelist. I worked with this guy for 15 years, and... I never got anywhere with him. Here comes this guy. You know, I'm just not like those guys. You know, you want to know something? You're the one that softened his heart. It was just God's desire that this other guy come along. But it's always God's desire that more than one of us come along. 
Most of the time, the people, uh, people that are usually more open to the gospel are people who heard the gospel when they were kids. People today, I mean, a lot of the people that I'm talking to right now and really sending these videos to and really working and trying to encourage them, a lot of the people that are most open to these, to these videos are people whose grandparents took them to church when they were kids. Now, those grandparents are part of this equation, is my point. Now, maybe the Lord would use one of these videos to bring them to saving faith. But what I want to make sure that we understand is that that is not to the exclusion of the labors of these grandparents. Did you get all that? I'm going to repeat it because I think our focus went away for a moment. And I don't want us to leave here and not get this. A lot of the people that I'm sending these videos to are people whose parents or grandparents brought them, if you will, to church or demonstrated They demonstrated a a Christian life to them, a godly life to them. And let's suppose that through one of these videos, one of them comes to faith. I don't want us to understand them coming to faith to the exclusion of the labors of these parents and these grandparents. Because we've all been working as a team. You follow me there? And this should encourage us as parents. We want, listen, what do we want? We want our kids, we want, we want our kids to know the Lord. We want our kids to walk in the Lord. Sometimes that's the case. Sometimes that's what God does. Sometimes it isn't what God does. It doesn't work on our timetable. And, and guess what? That's heart-wrenching, isn't it? It's really heart-aching. Um, you know, and, and we pray for our kids. We pray, Lord, save them, save them, save them. Um, Work in their hearts, work in their lives. And and it's easy to fall into this. Have you ever said this to yourself? doesn't seem like anything I do matters. I want to, I want to, like, I want to fracture that so bad that that never comes into our minds again because everything we do matters. It may be after we're gone that someone comes along and shares the gospel with them like we have many, many times. Only at this time, the Holy Spirit was pleased to open their hearts. Your labors in that person's life is just as crucial, maybe more so, probably more so, probably much more crucial than that last explanation that was given where they gave their hearts. We ought to watch the evil one don't bring us into such despair that we say, you know what, it don't matter what we do. It doesn't matter. Fruit, our marching orders are to abide and go. We abide and we go. We abide and I go. And then we trust the Lord for the rest, right? Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for these pictures of transforming grace, Father, that we see here, Father, these astonishing statements that they're so astonishing, Lord, that they're, they're just amazing statements. And, Father, we thank you for uh, this fruit, Lord, that you have engrafted us into you. And, and through you, you, you are the vine. We are the branches. Our fruitfulness is derivative of you. 
But Father, we see that we can do things that bring glory to the Father. And Lord, we see these various pictures. We see these, these various snapshots, these patterns of your transforming grace. Father, we thank you for this, and we pray, Father, that you would be pleased, O Lord, uh, to cause each one of us, Lord, to be fruitful 30, 60, and 90 times over, O Lord, for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.